And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Today, Golazzo returns with an epic tale of Rinascita, of Risorgimento, of Rigori, of Roberto, and of football coming Rome. Yes, today hindsight is 2020 as we relive the Azuri's conquest of Europe. July 2021, Wembley Stadium, the Euro 2020 final, and grazie al signore che ci ha dato il calcio, Italy are European champions. Three and a half years before, San Siro, Italy nil, Sweden nil, and what Gazetta called a calcio apocalypse, Italy missing out on the World Cup for the first time in 60 years. È finita, è finita. In between, what was behind Italy's meteoric climb back to the top? Well, I'm delighted to say that here to unravel that mystery and more, top investigative team, Marcotti and Horncastle. Hello. 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 Hello, James. Nice. Hey, what a treat to be telling this story, eh? Yeah, we're, we're really going back into the depths of time here. Um, I'm going to tell you now, I, I am not going to go light on the superlatives because... While I could imagine Italy winning the Euros, it's not difficult to imagine. We've won it before. We'll win World Cups. We've won them. We'll win them again. I genuinely didn't think that it could happen in this way, playing this this brand of football. And I think, you know, this is this is the biggest part of the story, to me at least, uh, of, of the significance of this. And, you know, and people are going to add more things, and I'm, I'm sure we will. We'll also point out that, you know, Jacobs won the 100-meter dash at the Olympics, which is just as unlikely. Maneskin winning the Eurovision. And just yesterday, some Italian physicists I've never heard of, but I'm sure Horncastle has, just won the, um, <laughs> just won the Nobel Prize as well. So, so far, so good. Also won Paris-Roubaix at the weekend. If oh, you're yeah. like, there you like go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And the other thing about this, as we already touched on, is that the kind of narrative arc coming from that tremendous low of 2017? How low was that, the fallout from San Siro, the nil-nil with Sweden? Well, you said Gazetta called it the apocalypse, James. It mm. wasn't Gazetta. I mean, well, I mean, they called it that because the head of the Italian Football Federation, Carlo Tavecchio, um, he was the one who said it would be apocalypse if we don't qualify, um, thinking that they would. In fact, he was so confident. Remember, he gave Giampiero Ventura, the hapless 69-year-old droopy D um, kind of coach that Italy had appointed, gave him a new contract before it. I mean, you could say that at least when it came to World Cups, Italy had been trending that way because since 2006, they'd gone on that pattern which kind of all world champions do, which is go out in the group stages in 2010. They did that again in 2014. Um, and a lot of people forgot what they'd done in the Euros in between, which was reached the final in 2012 under, under Prandelli. And then look that they could win uh, the Euros in 2016 under Conte, um, when they were probably the best coach team in the competition. But certainly after this, what happens is, um, yeah, there's an intervention, essentially, uh, by the Italian Olympic Committee, which is the the most important uh, sporting body, um, the one that kind of divvies up all the government subsidies and money, um, which has kind of already cut back its funding for the Italian Football Federation on the back of those uh, embarrassing group stage exits and said, right, enough is enough. We're going to appoint a couple of uh, commissioners 
uh, one of whom was Billy Costa-Curta, a former AC Milan uh, centre-back, part of that great Saki Capello side that won everything over and over again. And he decided to uh, take, well, I say he decided to take Italian football in the new direction. I think it had kind of already started by appointing Roberto Mancini. Mm. And this man brought in to lead the recovery, Il Mancio. An interesting choice because a legendary player and pretty successful manager, but a man who certainly as a player had always been for the national side, the great outsider. Yeah, um, no, quite. I mean, we've had these debates before. I, I thought he's arguably the most talented player of his generation, and obviously it's a generation that, that includes Roberto Baggio, and some will no doubt dispute that. Uh, but you're right, he was, you know, he was, this is what's so counterintuitive about it. Not only was he very much an outsider, I think in many ways, with, with the national side, famously going to World Cups and not playing a single minute or not being called up at all when many felt that he should have been, but even then, he always had this idea, or, or at least the team where which he's most closely associated with, obviously Sampdoria, always played a certain brand of football under Vujadin Boskov especially, which, you know, was, I don't want to say was similar to traditional Italian football, but in many ways it was. And, you know, he's played every type of football and every type of system. Since becoming, uh, since becoming a coach with, with Lazio. He's played very attacking football, more defensive football, whatever else. But he had the great merit to kind of embrace an idea, which with hindsight seems obvious. And not just him, but as, as James said, Costa Curta as well, which is football around Europe is trending a certain way. Teams that win and are successful at club level are teams that, you know, which have great harmony, great spirit, but also teams that, that generally press and they're comfortable in possession and they attack and they take the game uh, to the opposition. And he genuinely felt that this was this was the trend that football was going in and that the Italian national team had to go in the same direction. Which is funny because it's kind of the opposite conclusion that the England coach, Gareth Southgate, reached because he said, oh, well, look, France won a World Cup playing super defensive football and Portugal won the Euros kind of playing defensive football. Let me go and do the same. Mm. Um, so I, I always thought that was kind of a, a fascinating contrast there. Right. Um, and I also spoke to a, a member of the Italian Football Federation after the final, and their view of England was that it was the biggest waste of talent that they had seen at a major tournament in a long time in terms of Jaden Sancho coming off the bench, what, just to take a penalty, 120th minute. Uh, Grealish coming on, 99th minute. Mm. Jude Bellingham not even getting off the bench. But, you know, we'll get to the final. Spoiler alert. Yeah, we will. Metti un po' di musica leggera perché ho voglia di niente. So Mancho takes over in, what, May 2018, and as the Euro qualifiers begin, the defeats disappear and the fat score lines begin to roll in, a 5-0, a 6-0, a 9-1, perhaps even more importantly, this was a team that was clearly having fun when, indeed, the Azuri were unveiled on a live TV special on the eve in 2021 of the Euros, serenaded by some hit Musica Leggerissima. A couple of things stood out. One... Mancini and his staff kind of cosplaying the uh, Bierzo 82 look, decked out in an almost like-for-like replica of their uh, staff uniforms. And the other one was that this looked like a team, and this is kind of unusual for Italy, that really didn't seem to be feeling the weight of any expectations. I mean, you compare that to the desperation of the Ventura years or, I don't know, Trapattoni and his bottles of holy water on that. This was a carefree bunch. I, I think it was, but I think a lot of that, A, had to do with... After 2018, I think a lot of people were just were just happy to be there. I think it also had to do with the fact that, you know, more broadly in Italy, we're used to having outstanding defenders and outstanding strikers, and and, and thinking that that combination and, and midfielders would just kind of win the ball back. That that is how we go and win things, right? And and going back to what I said before about. You know, the gioco l'italiana, the, the sort of defending and the counter, and then we'll outsmart you and we'll suffer and we'll outlast you, blah, blah, blah. And what Mancini had served up was completely different. 
And so I think everybody was willing to say, or the general vibe was, yeah, let's go and get, let, let's give this a go, right? We're not as, there's a bunch of teams that are more talented than we are. Um, and, and I think in some ways, Italy kind of underestimated their talent level, possibly because in Italy, as I've said many times before, we're the magical country where, you know, in football, you're young until you're 25. And in real life, you're young until you're 40. Um, and, and so we didn't quite realize what we had. And, you know, if you look at the first game, you've got these guys playing for Sassuolo. There's no real Juve players in sight, you know, except for the two old guys at the back. But again, most people had decided, certainly I'd had, I'd written off Chiellini and Bonucci because Chiellini hardly kicked a ball that season and he's 100 years old and Bonucci made a bunch of stupid mistakes. And, you know, there was a sense that even where we were strongest in midfield, okay, it was Verratti, but we don't really see him because he plays in, he plays abroad. And like I said, Locatelli, it's a swallow and... You know, okay, Barella, fine, but is it Barella, is it Conte? And, you know, plus what's he done in Europe? Nothing. And so, judging by the old parameters, how good are our defenders? How good are our strikers? You know, you look around and you see the Juve guys I mentioned. You see Spinazzola, who's a sick note at that's the stage of his career, is always injured. You see Ciro Immobile, who, who doesn't score for, for, for Italy. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, fine, this is gonna suck, but at least we'll have we'll have a nice ride and maybe we'll build towards something. I, I think that was generally I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but wasn't that generally the vibe? Yeah. I think uh, also after eighteen months of the pandemic and Italy being kind of certainly the beginning of it, the epicenter for for Europe, um, probably had a much longer lockdown than say we had in the UK, uh, stricter enforcement as well that you know, Mancini kind of really lent on that and wanted not only to give the country something to be proud of, but to, to make them enjoy themselves. And I, I think, you know, just to elaborate further on the composition of the squad, you've got Immobile, Insigne and Verratti who played together as kids at Pescara, know each other inside out. They'd actually gone to a European Championship final with the under-21s back in, in 2013. Um, you've got the guys from Sassuolo, Berardi, who actually starts instead of Chiesa for the first couple of games. Locatelli, who hadn't moved to Juve at that point. And, you know, one of the things that stood out throughout the tournament, but particularly in the knockout stages, was Chiellini and how he played with a smile on his face in the way that I've only seen one other player do at a major tournament under pressure, which is probably Ronaldinho. And yet Chiellini is a, a centre-back. And he would have missed the Euros had it gone on schedule. Um, with that ACL injury, realised that it was probably going to be his last Euros, if not his last major tournament, and really embraced it. I think there are just so many great human stories. We'll get to Viali at some stage later, mm. but there was just so many reasons for, uh, I hate to use this term because it is an Instagram hashtag, but good vibes um, going around Coveciano. Mm. And they, they all loved being there in a way that they hadn't done for a long, long time. And yeah, I mean, Bonucci was saying, for example, that they couldn't wait to get back to the training ground so they could have their barbecues. You know, Benedeschi would bring everyone a hot croissant in the morning. Uh, Barella would do his wine tasting because um, he's a big, you know, once he finished the Euros, what did he do? He went to France and went to various vineyards to basically, you know, sort of, again, uh, go with his passion for, for, for that. So there was just so much, um, so much that was right uh, about, about how Italy went into that tournament. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.
Ness and Dorma tick. It's June the 12th, Stadio Olimpico in Rome, and to the sounds of that, Italy begin Euro 2020 against Turkey. Fabio Caressa, just one of the many kind of mood-catching bits of commentary that he that he bequeathed us throughout this tournament. Starting off the game, talking about the emotion of the match, of the of the country, though, coming together, as you mentioned, after the long year of often severe isolation in Italy through the pandemic, the fear, the anguish, time, in his words, to rise up and win again. It, it wasn't just 2017 that Italy were coming back from with this tournament. And, and once again, that feeling of, of redemption, which we've seen powering the Azurian years gone by, proving so very effective here. A 3-0 win in the opening game then, over Turkey, saluted thus by Caressa. We are a war machine. Well, it was followed at the Olympico by another 3-0, this time against Switzerland. Of course, the second big international victory over Switzerland of the year. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to the Eurovision. Uh, and then there was the 1-0 against Wales, again in Rome, to finish off the group stage. Italy, I think for most people, the most impressive side of, of any of the nations in the group stages. From all that run, which which game, which moments, which players stand out for you? For me, um, in the group stage, what stood out for me was was the way they played like a club side. Um, the way we used to often talk about how club football is different from, from international football. And they played with a cohesion and they pressed and they attacked and they harried and they took chances. They took risks. And this is one of the, this is one of Mancini's greatest merits. Um, I think the way he told these guys, hey, it's okay. It's okay to shoot from 30 yards. It's okay to take on uh, an opponent. You know, back in the traditional hierarchy of, of Italian football, you've got one or two guys per team who are allowed to do that. And everybody else has to work for them. And if they try it and get it wrong, you know, they get dirty looks. And he got rid of all that. And for me, watching Spinazzola just run down the wing and just murder opponents, watching the, the Locatelli Berardi goal, you know, the two of them combining. I mean, these are two guys from Sassuolo, you know, no fear whatsoever. And I think a lot of it, like James, I spoke to a member of the uh, coaching staff and possibly the same guy. And I asked him about kind of this uh, fearlessness. And he made the point that he thought that maybe it had to do with the fact that many of these guys were raised in teams that weren't big clubs. Because if you're at Juventus or, or, or Inter or whatever, you know, you're taught, you're taught this hierarchy. You understand this idea, this old school idea of Italian football. But, but a guy like Barella from the time he was 19... He was expected to be the boss at Cagliari, and he acted like it. Uh, Verratti, you know, his greatest fortune is that he didn't go to Juve at 18, but he went to Paris Saint-Germain. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm not making fun, but you know, we wouldn't, no, no, we wouldn't no. know who he was if he'd been to Juve. You know, he'd be Marrone or somebody like that, right? Um, Bodes well for Locatelli. <laughs> but no, but at least he went, see, Locatelli's yeah, the exception because obviously he was at Milan, but he was kicked out of Milan very young and he was still and he still kind of rebuilt himself there um i mean you could you could mention you could mention so many of these guys berardi you know sassuolo and and i think that created a willingness to a willingness to take risks and a willingness to to kind of to kind of embrace what the game is and and i think that was very very necessary i think it was very very unitalian in terms of the the traditions of italian football it was very unmancini like uh you know well, I'm sure we've mentioned before, right, in one of these shows, it's kind of the opposite thinking. I'm not having a go at Max Allegri, but his famous quote where he got criticized after one of you of his umpteen Champions League eliminations or defeats when, when he says, well, look, don't talk to me about tactics. It's like the NBA. What do you do in the last minute of the game? You give it to your best player and you, you, know, you hope for the best, right? I'm paraphrasing here, but we all remember that quote, right? And... With Mancini, was the opposite. He says, well, I'm not going to give it to my best player because, frankly, I'm not sure who that best player is, but I'm going to ask all these guys individually to step up. I'm going to show belief in them. You know, Jorginho, another example, Mr. Nobody from Nowhere, 
you know, playing for Verona or, or, or whatever until mid-career. These guys were just formed with, with a different attitude towards risk and a different willingness to take responsibility. And, and, and I thought, you know, they're at the heart of this story of, of this incredible achievement. Yeah, for me, the group stage, I mean, remember they started the first two games without Verratti and Locatelli did so well that by the time the third game came around, they're like, yeah, people on Twitter were saying, well, how does Verratti get back into this team? Locatelli has to, has to keep playing in it. But again, like talking to people around uh, Mancini, the feeling was you that he You almost had wanted... the voice there, James. You just needed a little bit more, <laughs> oh, oh, look. <laughs> well, I mean, he wanted to build this team around Verratti, around Jorginho and around Insigne, uh, which were essentially the three players that, for example, there was no position really for Verratti in, in Conte's uh, 3-5-2. There was no position for Insigne in it because where's a winger in that 3-5-2? Okay, can you play as a second striker, please, uh, Lorenzo? And Jorginho, remember, I think the, one of the only starts he had under Ventura was too late in the, in the playoff against, against Sweden. But Verratti's missing. Chiellini gets injured early against Switzerland. Remember, he had that goal disallowed and then he goes off clutching his groin and you think, oh, that's the last we'll see of Chiellini in this tournament. Um, and yet Locatelli scores a brace in that. And then the third game, uh, what was kind of neat was all of a sudden Chiesa comes in uh, and Pessina. And the, what the difference in that game was another thing that I think really speaks to how Mancini deserves so much credit was uh, the set pieces for Italy in this tournament where he brings in Gianni Vio, the former banker from, uh, from uh, Venice who's you know, been around the world, seen a lot of faces, you know, working with what Brentford, Leeds, Fiorentina, Catania famously, where he had that routine where the guys pull their pull their shorts down to distract the goalkeeper and they score. And that was and that, that was another kind of way of looking at this tournament is, okay, we've got seven or eight games. Um, some of them are going to re- be really tight. You know, if we can score goals from set pieces, find a way of winning from set pieces, then that's going to give us a, a, an edge. That's and and I don't want to say I think he thought of everything, but he tried to cover as many bases as he possibly could in his preparation for that tournament. And so even something is, you know, people probably don't really remember that set piece with the, the you know, Benucci and Acerbi st- stood in an offside position and coming in and disrupting the wall and Piscina running off it and scoring. But I think that was, that was another thing that you, you looked at and thought, wow, Italy are really, really credible as a contender. Well, three for three in the group stages, but after the Notte Magica in Rome, it was time for the Zuri to hit the road where the going, of course, got tougher. Austria in the round of 16, then Belgium in the quarterfinals, then Spain in the semis. However, the words of Maneskin's Eurovision triumph proving eerily prescient. A hard-fought 2-1 win over Austria. In Munich, some classic Italian defending and another 2-1 with Belgium, but the loss of a standout player, Leonardo Spinazzola, just after he saved what looked like a Belgian goal with his backside. And then to Wembley once more for the semi-final with Spain, where kind of for the first time you have Italy going to the mattresses in, in, in this matchup with Las Rojas, in which they're fair to say that they're kind of outplayed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I wrote um, for, for ESPN about how after that game, both things can be true. Italy could deserve to lose to Spain, and I thought on the balance of play, they deserve to lose to Spain, but also at the same time be fully deserving of being in the final. Um, that's the nature of, of knockout football. And I think the reason they struggled against Spain in, in a way that, I mean, I think they struggled in that game. They struggled for a spell in the second half against Austria, uh, where obviously that ended up being an extra time win. Um, but really that was it. Even against Belgium, you know, even after Jeremy Doku came on and, and, and kind of like, you know, did this Count Dooku thing and scared Bonucci... You know, I other than that, I never really felt that they were threatened or or on edge throughout this tournament. But the Spain game, you know, it showed that in the end, this is a game about skill and about technique, or or rather, it can be that if you make it that. And Luis Enrique, who I think is a phenomenal coach, he did that 
And I think it was really difficult for Mancini to keep up with that in that game. How, how big a role in all of this does Mancini's uh, backroom staff play? He's kind of full of the DNA of Italian greatness. You, you mentioned Samp, where you know a lot of us still identify Mancini as, as, a, as a Samp. But Samp player, perhaps beyond anything else, you've got four members of the Scudetto winning Samp side of, of 91, Attilio Lombardo, Giulio Nucciari, Fausto Faustino Salsano, and of course Capo Delegazione Gianluca Viali. You've also got Lele Oreali from the 82 World Cup winning squad. Football's greatest makeover ever, Kiko Ivani, uh, who's part of Saki's great Milan side, and uh, De Rossi as well, part of the 2006 World Cup side. Given that Mancini is, is a slight precedent as a kind of prickly character, how 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 important is that backroom staff and, and Viali's role? How, how does it all work? I, I thought, I mean, I had some insight into this. I gotta say, and I told them this. I didn't think it was going to work precisely because of Mancini's character. And you know, when you drop in other people who are all take it as individuals, you know, nice guys like Daniele De Rossi, and he's smart and whatever. But it is a cultural shift, right? Moving into the moving into the Mancini sphere. But I think it obviously did work, and I think part of the reason it worked is that these other people, and I would include Luca Vialli in this, because obviously you know Germelli del Gaul and Mancini and all this stuff. But the reality is, you know, it's not like these two guys like live together in a sitcom, right? I mean, they. Vialli has led his own life. He's managed his own team. He's done his own thing for the past 20 years, right? I think they all had the intelligence to understand that they had to fit into the Mancini way and they could be assets. They could contribute to it, but he would be the one in charge. And I think he also had the humility, more so than than a lot of people would, would recognize, to to look back at his own career. He is actually an extremely introspective person. And I think he looks back and looks at City and looks at Inter and Galatasaray and what worked, what what didn't work. And he says, okay, what do I do different? What can I learn? And he's actually a little bit humble um, in that way. I mean, one other thing that we didn't mention is for the first time, Italy, which in general time football, very resistant to analytics, you know, he brought back this guy, um, Antonio Gagliardi, who had been... He was the analyst at the FA, then he became Pilo's assistant, then he came back for the Euros, and they used data and analytics, especially in pressing situations, and Mancini was skeptical about it, but then when he saw that the kind of data he had would would help him press better, he embraced it. And, and that's the kind of openness that, you know, a lot of times people in their mid-50s don't normally display when it comes to football, especially people like Mancini, who you know, from the age of 12, had been told, you know, you're special, you're the person who will redefine the game of football. How did it all work, though, Gab? Uh, Attilio Lombardo, for example, what, what what did he do? I mean, it's a it's a massive kind of posse of of ex-players there. Well, obviously, I wasn't a part of it, but from what I've been told, it was Mancini doing a lot of thinking and a lot of talking with Salsano primarily, but always leaving himself... And, and they would kind of lay down the blueprint. And, and Lombardo as well, but really mostly Salzano. And then never, very rarely the day of the game, um, but usually before that, they would go and, and they would they would sound out the other people who were there. You said De Rossi Oriali, often looking for things about what they noted on the mood, but also also technical things, also stuff that, you know, they might have seen from the opponents um, and, and whatever else. You know, Mancini really wanted to keep these channels of communication open because he thought that these people were, were real assets to his staff. But equally, he wanted to be in a space where, you know, it would be his tighter group of um, of assistants, the guys he's always worked with. They would be kind of making the more fundamental decisions together. I mean, Salsen has always worked with Mancini. I mean, he's been alongside him since he he was he began coaching. I think that group, because they'd all played together, with the exception of uh, De Rossi um, and Oriali, who's been just a, a fixture, for the players, seeing them, how they were together, how well they got on, 
all the anecdotes that they had, all the experience that they had, that was actually the inspiration for them as kind of, wow, we would like to be like that one day ourselves, all getting together, all having that same kind of bond that has lasted and endured for all of these years. Isn't that something special? So there, there was an element of that. I mean, De Rossi has said that, um, yeah, he got the call quite late to join Mancini's, Mancini's staff. Um, he took it because he, you know, he was, he's been doing his coaching badges. And some of these guys are just remarkably humble, you know, when it comes to, you know, a guy like De Rossi has won the World Cup, quite happy to just set up, you know, the little hurdles that you do for your kind of muscle activation sort of thing in, in, in the morning in that kind of training session. Um, just be, be there to kind of, if there's a player who wants um, to know how you handled certain situations, you're there as a sounding board he can bounce off. But yeah, that humility, I think, is key because it's not just Gagliardi. It's, as I mentioned, with Gianni Vio, you know, a guy, a guy who doesn't have a football background but was, was pen-pushing in Unicredit in Mestre and uh, drawing, up, uh, drawing up these set-piece routines and Mancini basically calling up one day and saying, I think you can help us out. Um, so that all worked. But, I mean, you saw the bond between these guys. I, I think we shouldn't brush over the Austria game because... Mm. That was the first thing where they really felt that they had something to lose. Um, Bonucci says it's the most important game of that tournament because they started the second half really badly. He made a miscued clearance. Di Lorenzo gave away a silly free kick. Arnautovic has that goal, which is disallowed marginally. Um, and it, it leads to the biggest moment or most memorable moment, I think, of the entire Euros, which is Chiesa scores four minutes into extra time. Viali runs down uh, the steps at Wembley and Mancini turns around celebration and there's there's his great friend and they have that embrace which I think is is the abiding image of of this of this win yeah I, I wanted to just if I may add to that I mean they weren't part of the coaching staff but they might as well be is the role that Bono Cinchiellini played in this because I mean I remember and I got hammered to this but I guess I'll, I'll own it you know, before the Turkey game, when I found out Bonucci and Chiellini were starting, I said on ESPN, like, well, I would happily swap these two for Turkey centre-backs, Soyuncu and, and Demiral. And obviously, given what a stinker they had, I looked like an idiot. Um, but I, I genuinely thought that, and I don't think I was the only one, I think there might have been some people on the staff too that had some misgivings about this. We're going to try to defend with a high line when... You know, we've got these two older defenders who are Juve defenders who did their best work under Allegri, who are generally happier, you know, sitting deep, having a billion people around them, getting away with things in the box, kind of like, you know, enduring image of Chiellini with his like scrunched up face after a tackle or Bonucci complaining to the referee or something and the mind games and the dark arts and all those other things. You know, none of this has anything to do with Mancini's brand of football. But the pair of them had the humility to go and say, you know what, I'm going to buy into this. I'm going to buy into the way he wants us to be. And, you know, sometimes they, they look silly because, well, Bonucci's not slow. You know, he's not as fast as he was 10 years ago. So he knew that he was in danger of being exposed. But he didn't do that stupid thing where he starts backing up and calls the midfielders back. He said, all right, we're going to do it this way. And I think that really set the tone for some of the younger players in the staff. The leadership that those two guys showed, uh, and it obviously works both ways because Mancini put their trust in them. I I, I wouldn't have. I, I would have gone with Acerbi and Bastoni myself. But again, I probably would have won the Euros if I'd done that, which is why I'm not in charge. Mm. But I thought that was a huge call. And, you know, it's the kind of call that you make as a manager when you've spent time with these players, when you know them, when you understand them, and when you know that you've got buy-in from them and they're not gonna they're not going to let you down. And no matter their reputation and their past and their history... You know, they're saying, yeah, we're going to do things your way. And I think a lot of people refer back to this. This does sound very Italian mindset, but um, I think Mancini was aware that Chiellini and Bonucci were the, a, the two most experienced guys on the team by an absolute mile. And that um, he'd integrated a lot of young players over the last three years. And those guys who weren't young, so Verratti and Signor in Immobile, you know, Verratti had missed Euro 2016, obviously didn't go to a World Cup in 2018. Insigne was a fringe player, as was Immobile at Euro 2016. A lot of these guys hadn't played a lot of 
major tournament senior football. Um, and those guys speak about doing everything to have as much fun as possible up until you get to the stadium. So you almost let these young players forget about the pressure, forget about all the expectation that, that if there was expectation falling on them and then kind of draw a line on it and say, right, let's get serious. And I think that role that those guys played was uh, was really important. We should mention Syriga at some stage as well. Yeah, it's interesting as well because I talked about the way they seem to be a lot more carefree, less burdened by expectation that this team. But when you come through to a semi-final on penalties, and obviously the final as well, but Rigori, penalties had been, for Italy, the biggest nightmare in 1990, 94, and 98, 2016 with, with Zaza as well. But this time... <laughs> Zaza. <laughs> you so had to mention him. <laughs> Zaza and Pele. Pele. Don't remember. Don't forget Graziano Pele as well. Yeah. Anyway, through they go against Spain from uh, the spot, and they're in the final. Jorginho. Jorginho. What a penalty. Mm. And what a sorry, penalty. we haven't mentioned, maybe you're saving this, we haven't mentioned the goalkeeper yet, I no. think. Well, come on to him. Because I think that was pretty huge, especially what was going through his mind, you know, throughout the tournament. All right. Donnarumma and the big day at Wembley next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So I'm curious, in, in England, the day of the final and the days leading up to it, there was this tremendous feeling that this was it. It was destiny manifest, that everything had come together, that at last fortune was going to give England payback for all the years of, of hurt. As one Italian writer put it, it seemed like England were... Perfettamente avulso dal concetto di scaramanzia, completely detached from any understanding of what superstition is. This this business, as as, as the Italian sort of, of playing, it's coming home like a like an assertion that there was only one way this was going to go. What was it like for the Azuri that build up that trip to the stadium? Well, I mean, again, Bonucci says that on the bus uh, to Wembley that uh, yeah they were uh, singing songs as they as they did throughout the entire thing. I mean. You think of the group stages outside the hotel when they came back from the Olimpico, they were, they were singing uh, L'Estate Italiana, not, not Magiche. And then basically Insigne kind of uh, corrupted them all with his Neapolitan music uh, about, you know, sort of not going on a diet, you know, having your, having your meatballs and all of that sort of thing, which became the anthem. They get to the stadium and, you know, they're confronted by what we all saw, which was, you know, Wembley Way has been, you know, kind of like the last day of Notting Hill Carnival or Glastonbury. Mad Max. For, yeah. for <laughs> Mad Max for hours. And, you know, the, yeah, they're England fans hurling abuse uh, at, at the bus. Uh, and, you know, Benucci said it just did not phase them in the slightest. Um, and they didn't, really, they didn't really draw from it. They had complete belief that um, if they played as they know how, the result would follow. Even when there was someone burning the Italian flag in the stands, even when there was someone, when, when the entire, it felt like all of Wembley was whistling the Italian national anthem, uh, even when Luke Shaw scored, uh, scored a goal in a blink of an eye. That was the whole psychological side of it. There was kind of a technical, which is obviously they had watched all the England games. And I think there was a realization that 
yeah, England had these individual players, but they generally played really bad football. Or when they did win, it was against, uh, I guess it was the match against Ukraine where they had all those counterattacking goals, or where they scored first and then the floodgates opened. Um, but there was a chance, there was a real sense that they were playing a team that was not well coached and a team that, as we said before, put its better players on the bench. And, you know, when they saw the lineup again with sort of an extra trippier in there, just so you could defend more, there's also a sense, well, these guys look like, this looks like a Carletto Mazzone team, you know. This looks like a team that's, that's scared to have too many talented players out there. This looks like a team that wants to react to the opposition rather than take the game to them. And given the way Italy played, you know, that suited them fine. Um, somebody also remarked about, you know, when Italy struggled in the tournament against Spain, it was because Spain wanted the ball and wanted to dominate the ball and wanted to dominate the game. And that created huge problems for Italy. And they knew that that wasn't going to happen against um, against England because we hadn't seen that at all from England in the tournament. The one other thing, just in terms of going down the emotional rabbit hole route, for me, before the game, I mean, I, I've been doing this a long time and I rarely get moved, but I was genuinely moved. Before the game, they do what in Italy we call the ricognizione, where all the players come out and they kind of walk around the pitch and take in the surroundings and then they go back in the dressing room and get and get changed. And they all go out there, they all walk around and one guy stays out in the middle of the pitch for what to me felt like an eternity. I mean, it probably wasn't, but there really was a long period where he's standing by himself in the middle of the pitch and that man was, was Gianluca Vialli. And maybe it's because, you know, I've known the guy for, for 25 years and I've worked with him and I've written books with him, I was absolutely, I was absolutely floored. I couldn't imagine, you know, given his own personal battles, um, that, that or his, not a battle, he calls it, he calls it his journey with, with cancer. And for him to be there, you know, at Wembley, where he's got his own history, of course, at Wembley as well. I'm not saying that that impacted on the final because the players were all inside. They probably didn't even know. They're probably, hey, where's Luca? Did he get lost? Ha ha ha. But for me, and I think for a lot of the Italy fans who were there, who saw him on the pitch by himself for so long, you know, in the build-up to the game, that was that was just a really, really moving moment. Also, uh, <laughs> different emotion here. I think this is just a, a smile, brought a smile to a lot of people's faces. De Rossi, in, in the build-up to the final, uh, full kit, warming up as though he was about to play, I found that just amazing. I mean, he, he later said, you know, he was he was warming up the goalkeepers, uh, Donnarumma, Meret, and Sirigu, and uh, at his age, just you know, shooting a ball when when um, is is enough to to, to injure himself. Um, but just seeing his involvement, just that engagement from from everyone involved on that on that staff was uh, was pretty incredible. Mm. The game, though, as you mentioned, James, did not start well for Italy within two minutes fullback combining and Luke Shaw putting England ahead in the next certainly 15 minutes Azuria really struggling to get any kind of grip on the game between the wing backs and Kane but then England leave a bit of space leave a bit of time and what I think seemed like it was going to be an onslaught from the three lines never really materializes and Italy begin to take control themselves. Is there a moment, do you think, that changes the, 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 the way the game goes, the final goes? A lot of people point to Mancini's substitutions just inside the second half of Cristanti for Barella and above all Berardi coming on for Immobile. I, I think a lot of people point to, I mean, I don't know, James, if you disagree, but a lot of people point to, but for me, the real change came minute 15 and 20 with the same guys on the pitch when when England effectively just stopped attacking. Um, and, and it kind of became obvious that this is going to be his game plan the rest of the way. Um, and again, they knew that he very rarely changes things around, um, even with his substitutions. Southgate made his substitutions late. So you knew that you were going to have a spell of time with these same players out there where Italy would, would try to attack and get back into the game. And if that was, wasn't going to work, then you would have another spell after the substitution, which is what happened when uh, when Cristante and, and Berardi came on. And 
they imagined and they had other plans too if Southgate adjusted. But of course, Southgate never did. Gab, it sounds almost like you're saying that England lost the final rather than Italy won it. No, I mean, I think both things, both things are true. But I also, I also want to underscore that, look, Italy went a goal down, right? So they still had to score a goal and then try to score another one. But I think they really grew in confidence still in the first half before the substitutions when they realized that it was all going to be, you know, shutting up shop. And, and Southgate had been very open about this when he went on and on about how France won the World Cup with Pavard and Lucas Hernandez as, you know, fullbacks were really center backs playing wide and the power of the counterattack and whatever. And, you know, obviously forgetting that he doesn't have Pogba spraying the ball and he doesn't have Mbappe running onto it. But um, they really felt empowered. And that second half of the first half, if that makes any sense, you know, Italy went into the break a goal down, but feeling as if the game was very much there for the taking and feeling very, very comfortable from what I've been told. James, the, yeah. the, the equaliser, was that one of Gianni Vio's set-piece routines? <laughs> I think initially it was, but, I mean, the second phase, it gets quite scrappy because ultimately... Uh, it's a stooping header from the smallest player on the pitch, Marco Verratti, that uh, leads the ball landing at Bonucci's feet for, for him to hook in. But I think Gab's absolutely spot on about his analysis the second half of the first half um, and the confidence that comes with being unbeaten for so long. And then I, th- I think Declan Rice was a problem for, for, <laughs> for Italy, uh, at least in, insofar as his physicality was, was, was a problem for them. Um, and that's why Cristante came on, because I think he matched up better against him. And then what, do, what does Southgate do? He takes Rice off. And I thought that was, you know, for, for one of the small problems that, that England were causing Italy, all of a sudden that seemed to, to put things more in their favour uh, than it had been before. And yeah, again, you know, Benucci said this, they went in at halftime believing they could win it. They thought they could win it before uh, the full-time whistle. They thought they could win it in normal time. Berardi had a had an opportunity, just like when England played Italy at, at Euro 2012. Remember the Pirlo, I'm going to put a clown suit on Joe Hart in the shootout, where they dominated that game. You know, outpassing them by I don't know 600 to 300 or whatever it was. There was a feeling that even when this game went into extra time, that it was only going one way. Uh, even with all that kind of baggage of, of, of Italy and penalty shootouts, primarily because of the penalty shootouts they'd won against Spain, um, mm. how cool Jorginho was. And also, I mean, not to keep going back to Bonucci, but I mean, Bonucci takes a penalty in Euro 2016, normal time against Germany to take that to extra time, misses the penalty in, in, in the shootout. Against Spain in the semi-final, takes a penalty, scores a penalty. In this one, again, takes a penalty, scores a penalty. Um, just remarkable nerve from Italy. The, the shootout, Gab, you, you said before the tournament, you didn't think Italy were going to be winners. By the time we get to the shootout after 120 minutes in the final, what, what are you thinking? And then when you have the twist of Jorginho stepping up with the, with the title there for the taking and Jorginho misses, then what are you thinking? Because when you look at the Italy players, it's like they turn away like, oh, well, that's that then. I mean, when it comes to penalties, I know all these people... It's you know, a lottery, isn't it, Gap? You're yeah, going to say well, that. It's- <laughs> it is. And I'm sorry. All the nerds who say, you can practice penalties and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? The reality is, I mean, if you want to get nerdy and analytical, I'll give you a reason. It's not just your best penalty taker who goes and takes it. It's like your, <laughs> it's your top five and anything can happen. And these guys, there isn't enough of a sample size to draw any kind of conclusion. So there, you have it. So yes, it is a lottery. But... <laughs> Um, so that that is what I was feeling at that point. And in fact, at the final whistle, I did feel, you know, after extra time, I did feel, uh-oh, this is going to cost us. Because obviously you don't feel good about going into the penalties. I did feel a little bit better when, and I didn't notice this from the stand, but, you know, you have your little TV there in the press box. It did look like Southgate was just kind of like pointing to people and didn't have his five penalty takers set when it began. And obviously he'd made those late substitutions and whatever plan he had before, you know, necessarily went out the window. 
but it didn't really look like it was particularly organized. And as we found out, it wasn't. All right, you want to talk about Donnarumma, and we will do that very shortly. Let's just hear the moment that Italy won Euro 2020. Line of the, the tournament there from Fabio Caressa. Thank you, Lord, for giving us football. Thank you, Lord, for giving us football. And then Beppe Bergami, of all people, the most sober individual in Italian football, saying, embrace me, Fabio, embrace me. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> Nelson lying on the, 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 the four decades of those guys have gone through together. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's. I mean, they are so associated with uh, Italy winning things. You know, two thousand. Well, it, some of Italy's biggest moments in a way that I don't know. Yeah. So in in two thousand six, when Italy won the World Cup, they famously shouted "Campioni del Mondo," which means world champions, four times, and that was in homage to the eighty two World Cup final where. I think it was Nando Martellini who, in the commentary, says Campione del Mondo three times because they won it three times. So that was obviously choreographed. What I loved about this is, you know, Beppe Bergomi, you know, his nickname is Lodzio, you know, uncle. He's, like you said, it, it just doesn't fit his personality at all to do this. There's no doubt in my mind that this was not scripted. I think it's just him getting caught up in the emotion in kind of the goofy way that you know, people who do not wear their heart on their sleeve, and there are, believe me, there's many of us Italians who do not wear their heart on their sleeve, sometimes do when they get emotional and it feels all the more genuine. Mm, Bergami, of course, himself a, a, a part, a key part of the 82 World Cup winning squad. I, I didn't think it was scripted, no. I, I think it's an extraordinarily just magnificent piece of emotion that him saying, embrace me, Fabio. I, I'm not sure whether Fabio Caressa's uh, thank you, Lord, for giving us football. Maybe that was something that that was clear. Ad arte, yeah. but Bergami's no, you know, you know, you know where that comes from. Oh no, no, I don't. Where's it come from? Well, that comes from Diego Maradona in 1986, and he scores the goal against England. The legendary Argentine commentator says, says something like "Gracias Dios por el fútbol, gracias Dios right, por Maradona." Right, right? that always I mean, England. I don't know. That was against England, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> funny that, but um, but. And obviously, Caressa was inspired by that, right? But the the Bergomi stuff is just so is just so bizarre. And for those who haven't seen, Fabio Caressa is a very very small, I mean, super talented commentator. But you know, he's very small, and Bergomi is more like sort of goofy, bigger. And I I just cannot imagine. I wish they'd had a camera trained on them in in, in the moment. Maybe they mm. have somewhere on YouTube. Yeah. All right. So the scenes out on the pitch, you got all the players singing. It's coming to Rome. I don't know, James, do we want a little sidebar on the significance, the the motivation that well, three I, lions... I wish English people I wish English people would stop trying to explain it's coming home to, to people who are not from England because you know, I mean uh, it's very easy to misinterpret. Uh, when shouldn't they yeah, continue to is... explain it if it's easy to misinterpret? I mean I kinda get well, why no, English, because I get why people yeah, misunderstand but, uh, it, but I get why English people want to go well, actually, that's not why the song was written. Whether it's sung in that spirit now, I don't know. But the song was but, not written. It, I think, it, it's way. also the, the exactly. I, I, and I, I'm aware of that. But uh, the, the the failure to understand how elite athletes um, use even the smallest thing right. for for motivation, and how this continually gets used against England, and yet you think by explaining it uh, to people who aren't listening to you, by the way. Um, it will it will somehow change their oh actually guys don't use that because yeah it's actually yeah it's a song about it's quite a melancholic no, song I, I about think, not winning I think <laughs> can I just I mean for me I can understand why the English who've had ample demonstration of certain arrogant attitudes in recent years might want to say look on this one guys to be fair actually that wasn't us being arrogant whether or not it's going to affect any footballers or any other athletes out there I, I personally would be moved to say as well look this actually okay there are plenty of other times where we've been crazed ex-imperialists living out of some kind of ludicrous fantasy kind of global <laughs> politic but but this song actually was quite an engaging bit of uh, self-deprecating fun but anyway sure. but anyway but, is it, uh, but it worked 
Uh, no, sub- but the thing is, p- p- sorry, Gab, I'll just shoot no, in no, one last time. I'll, I'll let you guys <laughs> deal with your post-imperial issues. I mean, our empire ended a long time ago, so no, we don't but, have But that. people then people then say, if you mention this, yeah. and, and and they say, okay, yes, we did hear that, and it, and, and, and it did make us think, actually, we're going to show them that uh, this final hasn't already been decided. It's not the only thing. It's one right. aspect. Right. I mean, the behavior yeah. at Wembley, I think, was, you know, goes far beyond people singing... Uh, it's coming home. I mean, the whistling, but also just the whole kind of, and not just in this tournament. These are issues re- relating to the way people identify with the national side and what what it represents, which to some extent we're moving away from, and that's fantastic. But it, the final was a reminder that they are, they are still there. But that's not what this Golazzo is about. It's about Leonardo Bonucci singing It's Coming Rome and and the players all singing it on the way back on the on the airplane when disappointingly Mancini doesn't sit down and have a game of scopone, and then it's about the scenes in the Italian capital and the de- the dedications and the the way that the the, the players are received in triumph and and Chiellini uh, in, indeed uh, dedicating the triumph to uh, Davide Astori and saying we wish you'd have been here for for this one. Italy went into this tournament and Gab, you said you didn't expect great things from they didn't have an Mbappe they didn't have a, a I don't know Pogba a Kane a Sterling a De Bruyne a Lukaku what what did they have I mean call me deluded I think they did have one but unfortunately he was injured and his name is Zaniolo um I thought what they had was a manager who at that stage because look it's not like Mancini took over just before the tournament he took over three years earlier had sold them on this idea of being fun of being light-hearted of attacking because you know, when these players watch television and they watch the Champions League, that's how these teams who win the Champions League play, right? That that's that's what Klopp does. It's what Guardiola does. It's what you know Mourinho, with his dour demeanor, does not do, right? So he sold them on this idea that what we're doing is what works in this game, and. I thought they had a group of players that brought it that, that really had fully bought into it. I didn't think they had enough talent at the back or up front at this stage, but I thought this would be a great learning experience. Like 2016 could have been when Italy had a terrible squad under under Conte and still played really good football. And I was feeling good for for the World Cup. I thought, you know, maybe Zagnolo will be back. Maybe Pellegrini will live up to the hype. Um, you know, we'll find some other players somebody to help out Bastoni at the back. And yeah, and we'll compete. We'll be pretty good. I certainly never imagined that it would come together in this way and that actually Mancini's approach would have a multiplier effect on on the talent of these players. Mm-hmm. They had history. They had spirit. They had that great attitude. They had Donnarumma. Two saves, crucially, in the shootout in the final, but so much more. And as you say, Gab at a time when his very future was in doubt. Yeah, I, I think this is this is a huge part of the story because, you know, this is a guy who obviously has been a starter from Milan since the age of 16. Um, his agent and he, Mino Raiola, unable to find an agreement with the club. And, you know, kind of being told, okay, this is the price, take it or leave it. And then Mino Raiola calling the club's bluff and then they go and they sign Mike Mignette and they don't go back to him. And then all of a sudden he finds that, you know, there's no other clubs that actually want him. And in the end, yeah, our old pal Leo can get him a job at Paris Saint-Germain where he gets to compete with Kaylor Navas, who just signed a new contract himself. That's got to be deflating. That's, you know, this is still a very, very young man. And everybody remembers what happened when he was at the, you know, at the under 21s, when he was in a similar situation with an expiring contract. Dollaruma. Yes, Dollaruma, Milan fans, ever so original, throwing, you know, photocopy banknotes at him. And <laughs> I, I actually thought, man, on top of everything else, you know, here is Italy's best player, you know, arguably the only one in the squad who could could say that he's in the top five in the world um and on top Verratti. of that come on he, what you might you might say Verratti Chiesa now I don't know oh yeah maybe yeah, if you want to have Verratti fine I, I might put Barella in there now too but you know at the time I said this is the one guy who's bona fide top five right and on top of that he's got this colossal you know well, I'm gonna put in Chiellini for all putting players into the top five well no you can't put in Chiellini at this he age. was fantastic uh, whatever 
Just not ahead of the tur- not ahead of the tournament. When he pulled he wasn't. Saka down by the neck and, and walked away scot free. Yes, just genius. What a few times in my career that I've tricked you. You're the Albert. The, the the penalty. The the the, the penalty toss. Ah, yeah, that was but, magnificent. But I don't know what you, role, but of you know, beep housery, yeah. But you've got this guy who's supposed to be your best player in absolute terms or close to it, and he's dealing with so much off-the-pitch issues. And you look at Donnarumma, and even with a big beard, he is like a big kid. You know, you don't look at him and say, look, he's Mr. You know, un- unflappable. You know, if that had been a young Buffon who, you know, I, I imagine to be several orders of magnitude, more mature and intelligent and whatever than, than Donnarumma, although now I wonder about it that, you know, I would have been like, okay, fine, you know, or one of those icy, cool people. But that's not Donnarumma. And yet he was able to just isolate himself from all of that and all the crap he was dealing with. And and that's really, really impressive. So focused he didn't even realize he'd won. They also had Sirigu. And I I, I think, uh, again, a moment from the group stages was, what, late in the game against Wales, where Mancini basically gave five of the players who weren't really going to play anymore, aside from Cristante, the opportunity to play in a major tournament, which I think was a learning from his own experience of Italian 90, uh, where he didn't get off the bench. And and he decided in that final game in Rome to let Castrovilli, uh, let Sirigu um, come on and play and get a taste of it. And I think that was one of the things that helped further encourage the spirit within the group and I mentioned Sirigu because I think these guys are actually really important um, in the dressing room, around the training ground. People who aren't playing but are really positive use their experience to help players who are less experienced than themselves, um, younger than themselves. And again, yeah, the, the, the players uh, said that yeah, Sirigu, before the final, you know, he'd, he'd gone out of his, his way to get all friends and family to put like little videos together. He wrote a letter to each of his teammates it motivated them. Chiellini broke down, started crying. He said, I wish he hadn't done this to me. We're about to play a final. But all of those things created this emotional connection built on what Gabs just said about the manager, which, uh, you yeah, we've mentioned his humility. I, I think this, I, I, I think Gab may dispute this, but I think this this was 10 years in the making, this. I think the, the people in the background at the Italian Football Federation, I mean, Gab's mentioned Galliardi, the guy who works with the technical coordinator, Maurizio Vichidi. When Saki was brought in after they, you know, as a technical director after the 2010 debacle, they kind of completely reformed how players, at least when they are playing for their national team at under 15 level, at under 16 level, under 17 and, and, and so on, play a certain way. Um, according to these these principles, carp they call it, costruzione, ampiezza, rifinitura, profondità. If you fill all of those things, if you look, if you think of uh, as a team as a, as a as a series of containers, which you then fill all of those things, you'll have a team that plays the kind of football that Italy played at the at the Euros, and a lot of those guys have been playing together in that way, maybe not as well, but in that way, in that style, with that mindset for a long time and I think it it doesn't always pay off but I think it, it helped it helped Mancini and it did pay off um I'm sorry on Vichy I think it's important I think it's really important to note that his last name in Italian means slimy <laughs> no and then when he was coaching he's on more than one occasion like he wasn't a great coach when he was coaching. Remember him being sacked somewhere, some team in the south, and the coach afterwards saying, You know, like, it's, yeah, the name does not sound good. All right. Just while we're on the subject of kind of tangents, the notion of having an entire World Cup run, what, seven games in 1990, and you got someone with the skill of Roberto Mancini and he doesn't get a single minute, it's a, it is an incredible thought. Anyway, so many other stories clearly that we could tell about Italy's triumph at Euro 2020. But what had started in Rome on the 12th of June ended back in the Italian capital a month later with the Azuris received in triumph. And who knows what glories await them in the future? We shall see.
Meantime, many, many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle for bringing to life this very special chapter of the Azuri story in this Galazzo. We'll be back with more looks back at golden bits of Italian history in a new series of the podcast soon. For now, though, from all of us here, it's a Rivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.